On this episode of Sion 180, I'll be chatting with Bruno Lecouillet, CEO of the Investment Migration Council, an inspirational, influential voice that has gone the distance in investment migration programs in the Caribbean in an ever-changing world. Be bold. Take risks. Lead by example. Believe in your power. Say what you feel, mean what you say. Hi, I'm Leslie-Anne Sion, host of the new podcast series, Sion 180. Join me at Sion 180 on this journey of discovery and advancement. Searching for that ideal house or rental property with a picture-perfect view of the ocean or lush green hills and breeze that gently caresses your face. Century 21 Grenada helps our clients to go beyond the search to living. At Century 21, our agents understand that a home isn't just walls and a roof, but a sacred, inspiring place where you learn, laugh, play, and create. Contact us today at c21grenada.com or give us a call at 473-440-5227. Go beyond with Century 21. Hello again, and welcome to Sion 180. I am your host, Leslie Ann Sion. On this podcast series, we feature voices about the Caribbean from around the world who are making real differences in their areas of influence. I invite you to check out my website at sion180.com or visit your favorite podcast streaming sites for current episodes as well as past shows. You can also visit my Facebook or Instagram page for weekly updates, tidbits, advice, and interactions with me, your host, and fellow listeners. We are now in the fourth season of Sion 180, and we have brought you voices of trauma and triumph, discussing a diverse range of topics, from healthcare to managing finances, entrepreneurship, leadership, and motivational. On today's episode, we are discussing investment migration programs, also known as citizenship by investment programs. These days, it's a hot topic. And so we are pleased to have as our guest, Bruno Lecouillet, the first CEO of the Investment Migration Council. He leads the Secretariat reporting to the governing board and is responsible for all Investment Migration Council operations. He is a regular contributor to international publications and conferences in Europe, the Middle East, the Caribbean, Asia, and has held positions in London, Paris, and Hong Kong. He has extensive expertise and experience in the management and expansion of professional services associations and in investment migration programs, especially in the Caribbean. Bruno, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Thank you, Bruno. I know you're busy, um, but I wanted to approach this topic, first of all, by dissecting what it's about. Um, as you know, in the Caribbean, it's developed a somewhat pejorative view um, as a, a trade or, or sale of passports. Um, it's been described really as an investment migration program. 
can you give us a brief history about this and how it has become so popular globally? Yeah, of course. Uh, and again, thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to your show. Investment migration is a form of legal migration, which is used by over 80 sovereign states globally. So this isn't something specific to the Caribbean. Programs comprise of either citizenship or residence by investment, which essentially allows individuals to gain either citizenship rights or residency rights in return for investments in their host countries. So these programs are often structured around uh, entrepreneurship potential, which is, as we know, already a well-established practice in general immigration policy and used by many OECD countries. So the development of a globalized economy in recent decades has led to the further expansion of investment migration. Essentially, when it is managed effectively and well run, it creates benefits for the individual, of course, who's obtaining residency rights, or citizenship rights. It creates benefits for the host country, which is attracting debt-free capital injections into its economy. And of course, wider society. Thus, it facilitates integration and we believe also uh, contributes to peace uh, in what is uh, an increasingly connected and or interconnected world. Yes. So, Bruno, why are CBI programs, uh, Citizenship by Investment, Investment Migration programs, uh, so popular in the Caribbean? And what are the benefits and drawbacks um, as an income generator for these small island states? Hmm. Well, you know, these are, are, are very good questions. Uh, let's break it down in, into who the main three groups of actors are. So the drivers, if you like. Um, first of all, you have the individuals. So these are investor migrants that come across uh, from around the globe. They could be celebrities, they could be sportspersons, they could be world-class doctors or business persons. We've seen, of course, in Grenada uh, that there are strong family links uh, between Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton, so a sportsperson. Um, others are generally looking to relocate and build a better life for themselves uh, and also their families. They're looking for security, better education access, possibly. They're looking for career opportunities, greater mobility. Uh, and these are the main reasons why individuals apply for citizenship or residence by investment programs. If you look at the Caribbean specifically, I think it's fair to say uh, that many of the individuals applying to the Caribbean programs are certainly looking for uh, greater mobility. Right. So they're looking for a citizenship uh, where they perhaps can buy into real estate or investment funds, maybe spend a week or two holidaying on the island. So spending some much needed tourism dollars into the economy, but also use their um, newly gained citizenship rights uh, to have visa-free access to countries where 
their birthright citizenship doesn't allow them uh, similar access as a Caribbean passport. So the second uh, area or group of actor are the sovereign states. So these range from the largest and mo most powerful. So you have the United States, which has um, uh, an EB5 program and other green cards programs. Uh, you have the United Kingdom, which has a variety of migration programs uh, to the smaller, what we call peripheral economies that run investment migration programs to attract uh, debt-free capital injection, but also talent, experience, uh, and the investment that I um, already mentioned. And then the third are the professional service providers like yourself. So these are uh, you know, often the industry is serviced by law firms, whether they be um, marketing agents abroad or they be local agents handling applications on behalf of third parties. Yes. You then have due diligence providers. So these are the companies uh, that investigate applications and do a deep dive search into who this applicant is. So they look at uh, that person's criminal records. They look at how that person has acquired the wealth to allow them um, to uh, buy a residency abroad, a second home uh, or a citizenship. Um, and they will do a deep dive uh, into that person and their immediate family. They will also look, is that person politically exposed? What do I mean by politically exposed? Well, I mean, is that person working in central government for a foreign state and is highly is in a high position um, within that uh, foreign state, which could potentially open them up to corruption? Yes. So a lot of work is done by due diligence providers to ensure that only bona fide and fit candidates um, should meet the risk profile um, of a country offering either a residency or citizenship by investment program. Yes, you raised some very interesting points there, Bruno, with that response, because I'll tell you why. The profile that you are painting of a potential investor and applicant is somewhat removed from the initial perception as to who is the person, who are these folks that are interested in getting citizenship from, from another country and why the Caribbean? And is it that the Caribbean is weaker in KYC or due diligence or its transparency and governance structure that we are so popular? And I'd like you to debunk some of the myths about this, that somehow the Caribbean programs may be inferior in quality in terms of due diligence purposes, as opposed to the other countries, the United States, the UK, um, Turkey, Malta, etc., who also offer similar programs. Hmm. Well, look, on it's, they're very good questions. On paper, uh, they're not uh, any weaker at all. Uh, it very much depends on the risk appetites that a specific country has uh, for attracting uh, and approving a specific type of applicant. Now, if you look back uh, maybe seven to 10 years ago, uh, when these programs became highly popular. So you had, of course, historically, investment migration has been used since the times of the Romans. 
if you yes. contributed to the uh, building of the Roman Empire in return, um, you would be given citizenship uh, as a as a Roman. Yep. The United Kingdom, uh, in in similar fashion, uh, remodernized it and did it when it built its uh, its global uh, empire of colonies. Uh, and we've seen it in more recent times with Saint Kitts in the uh, mid eighties, uh, and then things went you know a little bit to sleep. Uh, the program was there, wasn't you know incredibly popular, um, and then came two thousand and eight and the global financial crisis. And governments were, um, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, screaming out for for funding. So they could either you know, go and borrow money, which wasn't, you know, really there, um, or they could increase taxes, which is very unpopular. And so they had to find innovative ways of attracting debt-free investment and capital into their economies. Um, and one of those is to uh, create residency by investment programs and citizenship by investment programs linked to real estate or government bonds um, or investment funds. Uh, and then we also saw the Caribbean, of course, uh, enter the fray. So when we started, we just had St. Kitts, uh, then came along others. Now you have Antigua, you have Dominica, uh, you have St. Lucia, uh, yes. and of course you have Grenada. Uh, and governments you know, quickly realized that um, to diversify our economies and replace lost investment from things like the sugarcane industry uh, and tourism, which was being hit quite hard also, uh, citizenship and residency by investment, completely legal form of migration is uh, quite a straightforward way of attracting investment uh, into the country. Uh, so you saw this proliferation um, of these uh, of these programs uh, and then becoming uh, increasingly popular. It was a little bit looser back then. Uh, I don't think there was much of a structure uh, around citizenship and residency by investment. But if you fast forward to today, the organization that uh, I co-founded nearly a decade ago now, uh, one of the first things we did was create a code of ethics and professional conduct, put some housekeeping in order for yes. governments, uh, attorneys dealing with migration files, and third-party promoters to start following um, the harmonized standards. So, you know, back to your point, these programs are, you know, you know often um, misrepresented, mistreated, in their, particularly in the media, uh, and they're often politicized. At the end of the day, they are, um, if well-structured, they are legal means uh, of migrating. Migration is, um, is a fact. There are over 300 million migrants uh, roaming around the world uh, looking for uh, a new place uh, to live. So essentially then what we had um, is the banks getting more involved uh, and undertaking you know more uh, a deeper due diligence uh, and being a little bit more selective as to who could come in and who could not. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing. Um, so the perception that often people will have and that I shared before um, researching this um, this industry uh, was that it's really for um, wealthy Russians, wealthy Chinese um, that have dubious uh, amounts of wealth, which is unexplained. And they're moving around the world. But, you know, the simple fact is that today investment migration is far more democratized 
than it was 10 years ago. Uh, often the marketing leads people to believe that, you know, it's people with private jets and, you know, huge yachts. Uh, but actually it's not eight times out of 10. It really isn't that. Um, we see increasing numbers of um, sports people, celebrities, uh, but also surgeons, doctors. Um, I you know, recently heard of a case of um, an Indian doctor who's a neurosurgeon and she needed to move you know, quickly around the world. Um, and her passport didn't allow her visa-free access to as many countries um, as an acquired passport through the Caribbean, which would give yes. you access to, let's say, 130, 150 countries uh, around the world. Uh, so that was a you know big eye opener uh, for for this surgeon that needed to travel quickly. Professional middle class. It, it's it's interesting that you raise that point about global accessibility because this is one of the key uh, attractive components to the programs and. I'm wondering, for instance, in recent times, as we've discussed, Bruno, um, how concerned should Caribbean governments be uh, with regard to recent announcements from the United States uh, with its amendment to the ETUS visa, uh, the EU and the UK's intention uh, to clamp down on CBI passport holders' access, of course, on the pretext of protecting um, their, their national borders. Um, wh what do you say to this? Well, look, investment migration programs, legal pathways, they will come and they will go. Um, we've seen that in Ireland 10 days ago. Uh, we've seen that in, in other countries. Uh, particularly in the Caribbean, we've seen Canada rescind its visa-free access to St. Kitts uh, a number of years ago, uh, and then Antigua followed, um, and that was for you know a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, and then recently, the U.S. government uh, has made the announcements that E2 treaties um, with uh, countries like Grenada that has an E2 treaty with the United States. You um, citizens will need to have had. Uh, to have three years continuous residency in um, their home country before applying uh, for the E2 uh, treaty. So, my, you know, these things, policy will always change dependent on who is in government. What I can tell you is that, yes, you're absolutely right. Investment migration is attracting uh, the increasing attention of policymakers, particularly in the European Union, but the primary focus on the EU member states operating such pathways. Having said that, non-EU countries with visa-free access to the European Schengen area have also been under microscope. So as recently as March this year, the European Parliament adopted a report calling on the EU's executive body, the European Commission, which is the, essentially the civil service of the European Union, to regulate investment migration in the EU. So this is summarizing all current applicable EU rules and procedures, the corresponding regulatory gaps in the EU's objectives for investment migration. Um, and this particular report addresses six non-EU countries, those being Antigua, Dominica, Grenada, St. Kitts, St. Lucia uh, and Vanuatu with visa-free access to the EU. 
So in summary, there is greater scrutiny on the EU level and there is an implication for Caribbean states. What you have is the European Commission, uh, we believe, um, should consider whether a non-EU country is offering golden visas uh, as a factor when deciding on exemptions from visa requirements. And then updating the EU's visa code on cooperation with third countries um, that want to phase out their golden passport schemes. That is something that the uh, EU is working on. I know that the EU has written, uh, the European Commission has written to the um, five countries in the Caribbean with citizenship by investment programs, asking for in-depth information on how these programs are run. So you're quite right, there is increasing uh, scrutiny, uh, but now it's in your government's hands uh, to take timely action to protect uh, your national investment uh, migration pathways. And one of those ways to do that is to perform a policy evaluation of the national rules and procedures, ensuring that there are high uh, security standards, uh, cross-checking of applicants, uh, in-person interviews, uh, intermediaries uh, are also looking uh, into, uh, well, looking into what intermediaries um, are doing and that there is uh, in, in ensuring efficient uh, prevention of money laundering and financing uh, of terrorism. So ensuring that your um, your national legislation is up to date with uh, the recent proposals from uh, the European Union. And then, of course, one of the things is, of course, uh, to be communicative. So you need to be having proactive dialogue with EU institutions but also yes. with the United States. Yes. So, so Bruno, that, that brings me to another question um, in light of, of what you are saying. Should uh, Caribbean governments promote their citizenship by investment programs differently in light of the intense scrutiny um, that is ongoing in recent times? And or what should we be looking at for adjustments uh, to, to sort of satisfy the risk appetite of the international community? Hmm. Well, you know, first of all, um, I think that countries in the Caribbean um, are internationally recognized sovereign states. Uh, and if they're acting within international law, they should protect their sovereign right to decide their way forward and not be bullied by, um, you know, what you could call as, you know, old colonialists uh, in the EU and in the United States. Yes. Um, so that's the first thing is defend your sovereign rights uh, to operate internationally and legally um, as is enshrined in your constitutions and the many bilateral agreements that you have uh, with, you know, international organizations. Times have moved on. There is, I understand, um, a lot of competition, but there are also a lot of these, um, there, well, there are a lot of programs, but there are a lot of migrants. Um, and as long as that continues to increase, there is no reason why countries like Grenada shouldn't benefit from it. What I will say is that the approach to promoting um, citizenship by investment programs uh, 
um, needs to change internationally. Um, there are a number of uh, actions, promotional actions taken in outside of, uh, let's say, Grenada, in uh, third countries, quite far away from from Grenada, uh, which are, you know, questionable in how they position uh, the Caribbean. So, promoting price discounts, fast processing. Uh, these are all things which are not conductive to a very good citizenship by investment program as of today. Yes. So I think countries in the Caribbean very seriously need to have a thing of how their countries are perceived abroad, not only by uh, their marketing agents promoting the product, uh, but those standards are then picked up by policymakers in the meetings I've had and said, look, this is how they're promoting um, the Caribbean passports with big posters in magazines, free access, visa-free access to the you know to European Union, processing in three months. Uh, and the EU that send, you know, that triggers a lot of red flags for them. Understandably so, yes. EU policymakers will say, well, how can you possibly undertake deep dive due diligence in three months on, on an applicant and their family? Um, it's almost impossible uh, to do that because it requires highly specialized uh, due diligence uh, companies to be able to turn around such reports uh, and then international police checks need to be carried out. So your marketing agents abroad should stop promoting um, a 90-day turnaround on an application. These are quality programs that potentially bring in huge amounts of revenue that is much needed. Revenue that can be invested in schools, in hospitals, in higher education, in sending children uh, to further their education abroad in specialized universities for medical training. Um, to help build um, old um, pension homes, to invest in infrastructure, to protect life uh, under the sea, yes. to create programs against climate change. Yes. So these programs are very, very, very valuable uh, and you need to protect their sustainability and longevity. Yes. Very important points because that, of course, touches on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, etc., and the enormous macroeconomic benefits that uh, can be enjoyed by these countries. But I want to take you up on two points um, that I think are worth uh, distilling a bit more. One is that a lot of the Caribbean governments uh, contract the marketing and promotion of their programs to uh, international representatives, marketing agents. And sometimes in this predatory industry, a lot of damage can be done in the type of marketing, um, which is almost out of control um, at times because it contains a lot of misrepresentations. And I don't find that our Caribbean governments are monitoring or surveilling or supervising uh, these international marketing agents sufficiently because they are in effect sometimes doing some damage um, to the sustainability and viability of these programs. And as much as we say that we are staunch defenders of our sovereignty, 
the reality is, Bruno, that as small islands, uh, underdeveloped developing states, if the international community says it doesn't want an offshore uh, jurisdiction existing, it'll pass the legislation that has us almost obsolete, that we're forced to repeal the legislation that allows offshore finance uh, to take place. So in some circles, it may be felt that recent announcements are heading in the direction of wanting to shut down these programs. And that is why I am delighted to hear you speak uh, to the overall economic and social benefits that they can bring uh, to the country. But do you think that governments have more of a role to play um, in, in monitoring what is put out there by the marketing agents in the international community? I think it's not an industry which is by all means perfect, but neither is banking, neither is cryptocurrency, neither are you know, you know, neither is industry, whether it's agriculture or you know, turning metals into uh, homeware products. Uh, what we do know is that there are benefits to host countries and wider society uh, from meaningful financial contributions to that society and to that, that culture. Um, and it's critical in funding key government activities such as disaster relief and social programs. Right. We also know that there are many benefits to individuals that use investment migration to start new businesses in their chosen jurisdiction, to benefit from greater mobility or simply to live uh, in a country. So there is a lot of positive impact that is investment and development finance and driving local economies. And this isn't me saying this, this is research that's been undertake, uh, undertaken by uh, the International Monetary Fund, uh, uh, the European Parliamentary Research Service, uh, and of course, the very good investment migration research papers. What I do think though, is coming back to your to your first uh, comment, in, in that governments or some governments are outsourcing the totality of promotion of uh, programs uh, all over the world and putting all their eggs in one basket. Yes. Um, I think that was probably suitable as the programs were being launched and it was the right fit for Caribbean countries that were new to this industry. So you would, uh, like any industry, you import the talent if you don't know how to do it yourself. Yes. But I think at this point, with many of the programs, you know, have been, you know, going on for seven, eight, nine, ten years. Um, I think right now, um, local Grenadians um, are very well equipped, have the intellectual capacity, have the education, the training and the experience to run the programs 100 percent themselves, including proper oversight on third parties which essentially are acting as ambassadors to the country and to put marketing and sales standards we've done some work on this we've publicly made available a report uh, uh, and a code of marketing and sales promotion standards for governments and for third country uh, uh, agents to abide by um, so all our members are abiding by these different codes um, and that is one of those so it's not a perfect industry uh, i've said it before the yes. importance of improving standards uh, is that it should definitely be on the top of the list for these programs to be uh, sustainable 
but by implementing improved standards and regulation of the sector, we can ensure that the benefits of investment migration are retained whilst minimizing the risks of abuse. Now, there's always abuse, no matter you know, sort of what area of business you are. I don't think investment migration has more abuse than banking, uh, for example. Uh, it's just that because it is migration, it's very interesting for the media because they love migration stories. Yes. Salacious and it's very <laughs> absolutely they you know they make good reading for 24 hours yep um when banking stories are really not interesting that much because there's really essentially no human element to most of the banking stories you hear about when migration stories have a human element uh, to them so there is there is i think you know some abuse since i've been you know in this business i've seen less and less of it which is great um the sector it does face concerns around issues of due diligence transparency uh, and illegal activities uh which can occur when it is abused um and, but these abuses they stem from a lack of common standards and regulation uh and they can be changed uh, the imc stands ready to assist governments uh, that want to make uh, those improvements. Uh, and I truly believe uh, that investment migration uh, can be here to stay if there is this common approach uh, to due diligence uh, standards, better risk management and oversight uh, and transparency and information sharing mechanisms. Yes, that, that's a great segue into the final question. Um, and that is, will these Caribbean citizenship by investment programs survive uh, the new challenges based on, on recent trends that we've discussed? Can it survive? It's a very difficult question to answer, really. I, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a politician, so you need to have that will uh, of the politics uh, of it. Uh, we've seen programs close overnight because there's been a general election. Uh, we've seen programs open because, again, because there's a, an election, an incoming government is supportive, an outgoing wasn't supportive, and vice versa. Yes. Uh, we've seen a lot more work being done uh, in the policy circle. So regulation, um, which we support, uh, is in the pipeline for, for residency programs, and countries in the Caribbean will need to be geared up and ready and invest in public affairs work, which it hasn't had to do in the past to ensure the sustainability of the programs. So there are areas where uh, OECS countries can and should work together whilst at the same time competing on the stage for the same clients. Yes. Uh, and I think that is when you start separating the adults from the children uh, in the room. <laughs> so whether or not the programs can continue to operate. I think, you know, we will see change. Definitely programs will come, programs will go. The fact is, though, with 300 million migrants roaming around the world, uh, it's impossible to stop um, globalization uh, where we are today. We've come out of a pandemic uh, of two and a half years. And frankly, people just want to start traveling uh, again for the most part. Uh, 
uh, and they want to move country, I speak regularly to people and say, hey, you know, I'm interested um, to spend a year or two in Lisbon, in Portugal, um, or I've spent six months in Antigua, I want to go down to Panama and spend six months there. Yes. They also have a whole new generation uh, of younger uh, people uh, that now see themselves as more highly mobile than their parents' generation. Uh, and, you know, these people are in their 20s to late, well, let's say in their 20s, early early to late 20s. So you're seeing that shift. So the, the demand will continue to be there. It's now for governments to adapt their citizenship and residency products to meet that demand and also uh, to ensure that they um, they structure them in a manner which is acceptable to uh, supranational bodies uh, whose interest is security, money laundering and financing of terrorism and so forth. Yes. So I'm quite upbeat for the Caribbean. Good. I'm glad that we can end on an optimistic note, Bruno. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that the Investment Migration Council does. Um, and thank you for the attention that you pay to the Caribbean. I am sure that we'll be the better for it. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you again so much, Bruno. I think this was such a timely discussion, taking into consideration how quickly developments are taking place in the investment migration space and the many discussions that are being held as we speak at the levels of governments in the region. It's been great hearing from you, giving your broad-based perspective on the topic and your council's leading role. I hope everyone involved in the CBI space gets an opportunity to hear your views and outlook on this issue. Thank you. I believe this was so necessary. Thank you for being with us on the Sion 180 podcast. This is season four, and we continue to learn from our community of professionals who grace our platform. Don't forget to hit us up on social media platforms. We do love hearing from you all. Tune in again next Sunday for another episode or check us out anytime on YouTube and on Sion180.com for all current and past episodes. This is Sion 180. Be safe, everybody.